Hello and welcome to Rebecca Neal, the podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca, a holistic health and life coach, business mentor, creative entrepreneur, and your online bestie. I'm here to remind you that it is more than okay to show up as your authentic self, to have high expectations for your life, to become financially independent and get paid to do what it is that you love. Each week, I'm going to share episodes with you to inspire, educate, and empower you to reconnect to your soul's purpose, to awaken that power within and create a life and business that you desire. My mission and purpose is to help you find confidence to take your life from ordinary to extraordinary, to give you the tools and steps to living more in alignment with your true self. So if you're ready for honest and practical, soulful lessons, and you're committed to investing in yourself, then you are in the right place. And the reality is no one's coming to save you. And it's really only up to you to start to create and design a life that you love, a life that's exciting and invigorating. It's time to take charge of your life right now. Are you ready to grow, babe? Hello and welcome back to Rebecca Neal, the podcast. Today on the show, I have one of my good friends, Luke Medill. Luke is Australia's national coaching manager, an Australian Olympian and multiple national champion in BMX racing. Luke began racing and competed in his first race at just three years old. Wow, it's no wonder he became a champion rider. Luke suffered a terrible life-threatening injury that doctors feared would leave him a quadriplegic. However, this, as you'll learn today, did not stop him from achieving so much greatness. I'm super excited to have him on the show and share him with you all today. Welcome to the show, Luke. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you as we have been friends for such a long time and I know you're going to bring so much value to my audience. So what I like to ask all my guests is how do you have your coffee in the morning? (laughs) Uh, Mine's probably going to be a bit of a different answer because I actually don't do coffee. So one of those rare people that uh, I'm actually a tea drinker. So (laughs) um, a little bit different, especially being an athlete, but uh, yeah, I actually have a simple, plain white tea, so very boring for me. Interesting. And that's why I like to ask that question because most people assume everyone drinks coffee, right? And I would have assumed you drank coffee for energy as well. So have you never had a coffee before? I have. It's more this, just the taste, like even coffee in general, like coffee, chocolate, iced coffee, like anything like that. I'm not sure why. I just do not like the flavor. It's extremely weird. Actually, I don't like it because it's one, not very social and two, yeah, I'm missing out on that uh, little burst of energy throughout the day. That's crazy. I'm not a tea fan. I mean, I drink herbal tea, but I'm not a black tea person. I'm not into it. (laughs) So is it really true that you started writing at the age of three? Because that blows my mind. When I actually had to research you, seeing as you're my friend, it was a bit bizarre to have to research you, but it was really cool what I found. And starting racing at three years old, tell us a little bit about this and how this came about. Was riding bikes part of your family? Was your dad into it? Yeah, so it was. So we, um, I've got three older brothers and they're all seven to 12 years older than me. So um, when we moved uh, out here to the West in Penrith, there was actually um, our neighbours up the road had a, a BMX track where they'd have hundreds of riders come and actually race there. So that's what got us into the sport. And then obviously me being so young, um, 
my brothers were all racing and uh yeah I guess I can't remember because I was only three at the time but definitely wanted to race and I only had training wheels on you couldn't race with training wheels so I had to learn to um get them off and, and get around the track so I was definitely sort of I guess born into the sport and um yeah don't really know my life without the sport so it's been a very long journey. Yeah that's awesome and I think it really shows you see so many athletes or champions that have started at such a young age. So it didn't really surprise me, I guess, when I read this, but it's so, when I think back to how, when I was three years old, God, I must've just been playing with Barbie. <laughs> like, I don't think I would have comprehended like riding around on a bike and becoming a champion in the future, which is, it's pretty cool. So uh, you are the king of the BMX Australia. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Winning both national titles and completing, um, competing in the Olympics. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey of, I guess, from where that all started and now that you're a national coach, how does that look? And I did read somewhere online that you are known as Dr. Smooth. <laughs> What's all that about? <laughs> Um, well, we'll try and uh, I'll go through the steps. So, yeah, obviously throughout my career I um. I, I always sort of played other sports and all sports, but for some reason BMX was just that passion for me growing up. I did tennis and a few other sports, which I kind of always asked my pe- my parents, why didn't they just force me into continuing playing tennis or golf or something? Because uh, my career probably would have been a little bit richer. But, um, yeah, always came back to uh, the passion of BMX. And then, yeah, I guess it was when I was around 17, 18 that I always wanted to go overseas and compete and I guess always having that dream and that goal to um, uh, to be probably one of the best riders in Australia I could be and then also compete internationally against some of the riders that I've always watched and dreamed about doing, um, yeah, slowly became a reality. And I think it was just because of the more the passion I had in the sport and the goals I was setting myself and just kept ticking those boxes along the way. And I guess it's one of those things every year you just, whether you win or you don't win, you want to you know, continue winning the next year or if you don't win, it pushes you to, to try and be better um, on and then all of a sudden, you know, year after year, you look back and 30 years and you know, <laughs> now nearly 40 years have been gone and it's, um, yeah, it's one of those things that just slowly evolves over time and, yeah, unfortunately I got a, uh, a little nickname along the way of Dr. Smith, which definitely didn't mean I was smooth with the ladies or <laughs> I was... Uh, a good, uh, uh, I guess, a good rider on the track. So my my skills and and the way I rode the bike, um, I guess, they classed as smooth. So, yeah, that's that explanation there. <laughs> I did a... wonder if it was relevant to women. <laughs> uh, definitely not, and that's why I'm still a single at forty. Uh, there you go, ladies. If you want to hang out with Luke, he's single and ready to mingle. <laughs> that's so cool. I guess where does it? The passion, like talk to me about passion because I obviously as a business coach, I work with women who are big visionaries and I turn their passions into profit. I help them, I guide them to, I guess, go, okay, this is what I'm passionate about. How can I make money from that? So what does passion mean to you? Like what does that look like? Did it come from just that continuous practicing of the sport or did you fall in love with it from something else? Um, I guess from a younger age, obviously, I was almost born into it. So I I dare say that helped a lot. But even now, when I've sort of, you know, transitioned into the coaching side of things and looking at other writers, and even just, um, I guess, transforming my life into a business in general, I think you still have to have that passion and drive in some way. Mm -hmm. I think, um, too, also watching other writers coming through and starting to understand where they're at. I think they 
set themselves goals and they believe that they want to do it, but I don't think deep down that's actually the direction they want to go. So and I think that's just everyone in life. It's, it's easy to sort of say, I want to go do this or set a goal to do that. But if you don't fully believe it in yourself and sort of every minute of the day you're, you know, doing what you can to be better in that position, then you're going to, I think you're always going to slowly doubt yourself and it's going to take time to um, achieve those goals or maybe never achieve them because you just, you're not fully believing in it yourself. So I think that's where sort of the passion comes into it. You have to, you have to really want to, you know, pretty much dream and, and just want that every day and want to be better in it. And you want to try and, um, yeah, strive to be the best. And I think that's where as a coach now I can see that in younger athletes. So you can start to identify them earlier in their career and see that, you know, they've got a lot of talent, but their passion and their drive just isn't quite there. And that could be the the determining factor when they get a little bit older. Yeah. I love that you touched on that because self-belief and self-worth is such a big part of success. And sometimes we need a coach or someone to guide us through that, to be able to almost like I always joke, I pull the greatness out of people. It's already within them, but I actually pull it out of them and show people the way and really help people find that not, well, they've got that passion, but they don't almost don't believe that they can achieve what it is they want to with that passion. And it sounds like you do that very similar in the BMX space. And so something I get asked a lot is about motivation and how I have such high motivation to achieve what I've achieved and what I continue to achieve on a daily basis. You know, I work from home. I don't have a boss. I am all of the things in my business. How do I show up consistently every day to achieve success? So for you, I mean, whether it's now or when you were competing in the Olympics or, you know, we'll touch on that in a moment. What is it that drives your motivation or was there something that you did that um, created that motivation for you? Um, I think one, I just loved riding my bike in general. So I think that's where sort of the passion came from. Like it didn't matter whether I was racing or, you know, just practicing. I just loved, you know, riding my bike. So I noticed sort of it was very clear when I was at that age of sort of 18, 19, when you can start to go out and drink and girls and cars and that my passion didn't go that way. Like I think a lot of the time it can. And, you know, I was looking forward to the weekend to be able to ride my bike, not to go out or anything like that. So I think that showed where I guess the dedication was then. And I think it's, um, I think it's one of those things where obviously throughout life, different things can come in and distract you in different ways and take you off the line and vision of where you wanted to go. And I think that's also where it comes back to, um, yeah, how much and how, how bad you actually want it. But some of, um, some of the riders, I guess, that we have, um, issues with is around those ages you know it's it's definitely hard for people in life when there's life changes when they're coming out of school and going into work and trying to juggle that with sport and the rest of it um and just like I guess people in in daily jobs when they're trying to deal with families or things outside their um external work it's it's really hard to try and keep them online and I guess that's what we try and do um you know, as coaches with sport, there's always going to be those highs and lows, but trying to have that end goal and that passion that's always there for them. But it's interesting, I think, um, with me, with training as well, um, I 
I was never a sore loser. Like I always took losing, um, you know, just as good as anyone else, but I hated losing. So I guess for me, I knew that if I put in the work, um, you know, the harder I trained and the more work I put in, then I wouldn't have that, um, you know, that feeling of failure. And it wasn't so much winning the event, but if I actually went to an event unprepared, um, you know, I'd probably even get a little bit more pissed off with myself because I was, you know, that's my own fault. Whereas if I turned up at the event and I was 100% prepared, put all the work in, um, you know, win or lose, you still walk away with some sort of satisfaction. So that was, um, for me, when I got older, I just realised that the training side of things and the work that I put in behind the scenes, it just made the outcome that much better, win or lose. Mm, there's so much in what you just shared there. I can imagine you slamming down your riding gear and getting the shits though. <laughs> yeah, I was, I always kept things with you and I was definitely not one of those athletes that people ever saw me, um, yeah, smashing or breaking things or, you know, some of the stuff you see, I could definitely hold it in well, but yeah, deep down inside, I was definitely uh, bashing myself up. <laughs> Crumbling. I think it's important how you mentioned that about life changes and things like that. I know personally, when I was dating my rugby player boyfriend early in my twenties, I remember the guys that he'd grown up with that were also incredibly good at rugby didn't go on to achieve what he did because of partying, because of the distractions and the things like that. And I think it does, it takes that utmost way you know unwavering dedication to what you're doing and that deep desire and passion to achieve that you don't get wavered by those parties all those weekends or all those different things that are happening around you and so I guess as a coach your important role with those guys would to be to remind them of those goals and passion is that right yeah 100% and I mean probably a classic example is right now during COVID I mean you know once gyms closed when BMX facilities closed and everyone closed it was like the world ended for some of these athletes it's like what do I do like panic stations and um, you know they can't train they can't do things and trying to see their anxiety levels just creep up over just something so you know I guess it was kind of big but at the end of the day it's you know there's no racing on there's no gyms open there's nothing we can do about it but, um, yeah, to see them sort of struggle just with dealing with that fact and then um, I guess the same thing in in life as well, you know, trying to let them see that there is some hard times coming up. So we try and let the guys know that, you know, unfortunately BMX is one of those sports where even if you're the best in the world, at some stage in your life you're going to have to end the sport and get a job and go out in the real world. So trying to get them to understand that that's okay um and try and guide them through that so and it is one of the harder things because obviously to be a professional in sport you've got to be you know 100 dedicated but when you're in a sport like bmx where it's only probably going to just get you by through life and then you're still going to have to have something there at the end of it um trying to make sure they're continuing with study or you know having something there to fall back on throughout which is probably the hardest part for those guys to juggle and to get through so i guess it's sort of um making giving them two two journeys, one a, a journey in sport, which is normally only around 10 years, but then making sure that they understand that there's a, probably a bigger and harder life out there when they finish their sport. Yeah, that's a good point. I think as athletes, um, from my understanding, is that your that's your identity, that's who you are, you don't know anything else. And then all of a sudden you get thrown out into the real world and you're like, now what? Like you've probably been very lucky to become the national coaching manager and do what you do, whereas a lot of the other guys I can imagine come up the back end of that and don't really have that opportunity and have to actually go, oh, shit, now what? 
Yeah, no, definitely. And see, some people don't, you know, some, I guess it's like football or any sport. Some people move into, you know, coaching or they move into, you know, doing some sort of commentary work or something. Whereas some people just don't have that vision at all, which again, you know, is fine. They just got to try and work out what their goals are after being, um, you know, in a sport. But I guess for me, it was, yeah, definitely a little bit easier. I kind of sort of fell into this role. It just all happened at a good time for me, which definitely helped me because I felt that as well. You sort of, as you mentioned, it's exactly right. You lose your identity. You feel like you're almost nobody anymore. So, um, it is a weird feeling because I used to look at, you know, different athletes and they'd be retiring and getting upset. And I'm thinking, what, what do these guys care about? They've got millions of dollars, they're retiring. But yeah, you do feel like that you don't know life without having your sport behind you. So it's definitely something that you need something to fill that void and, you know, find new passions and new goals and new drive. And it's definitely hard to find life goals outside of sport because in sport it's easy you just prepare for an event or something you're trying to achieve for but now to try and find goals in life it's definitely harder and and not so easy to just tick that box I can't just go out there and train harder in the gym and life's (laughs) going to be easier Um, you know there's definitely things you've got to plan and, and life doesn't go to plan as we know so failure is a lot easier outside of sport as well. Yeah, I like that because it, it is, it's, I'm very big on goal setting and action steps and, you know, having things to achieve. And I think in business, especially as well as sport, I guess it's so easy to go, okay, this is what I'm going to do this time and I'll achieve that and then reverse engineer the steps back. And that's how I'm going to get there, right? It's like a GPS to, you, to your destination of goal setting. However, in life, you know, relationships, friendships, all the things outside of, you know, sport and business, you can't just go, okay, that's it. I'm going to reverse engineer back to where I am now and I'll actually land where I want to land. So that's a good point. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I've, again, being an athlete, you don't necessarily have a boss or anyone to report to or anything like that as such. Like you're, you know, you're determining your own career and your own sport. And, you know, sometimes you have coaches and other things, but then to go into a business and have all these great ideas and think you want to move in this direction, but then you get a CEO or someone else that just shuts you down or, you know, says no to something. And it's like, hang on a second, like no one's said no to me before. (laughs) No one stopped me from achieving, you know, what I want to try and achieve before. So I guess it's adapting and being able to realize that, you know, yeah, it's not always going to be easy and your ideas aren't always going to be um, the way you want them to go. But I guess that's just, um, yeah, that whole new learning curve in life and trying to adapt to it and then move in a new direction, but still trying to keep those same goals. Mm. I think for me, I can relate to the identity piece as a fitness model and coming off the back end of that, changing my body, going through depression, all those sorts of things. I really lost who I'd become, not who I was, but the identity of who I was known for and my body and the competing and the whole industry. And I can only kind of relate to what you're saying in that sense. Did you feel when you came off the back of what, you know, being an athlete and moving out of that into the real world, let's say, did you go through any of that mindset, mental health type experience? Um, A little bit, yeah. Like I definitely started to struggle with... um, I guess the confusing part for me was having that feeling of being an athlete and then not getting the same satisfaction in the real world and having to, I guess, feel like something wasn't there and something wasn't right. I wasn't feeling that void in my life. And I guess it was just learning that that was okay. 
um, I probably wasn't going to get those same satisfactions as I got from winning a race or other things like that in the real world. But just learning that there's other ways to, I guess, enjoy the workspace that I was within and having little goals within that. And I guess it's just resetting my body into normal life again, which is, uh, you know, again, hard as an athlete. And it's why I, I can see now clear as day why athletes go through depression and suicide and alcohol and drugs because it's such a mental thing to try and convince yourself that it's kind of sad in a way but life probably won't be quite as exciting as it was before and you're not going to have those massive moments and those celebrations but you can sort of have that in other ways but you just got to reset yourself to do that and and yeah, I've kind of definitely struggled with it, but find, found finding my feet okay. Um, but like I said, I can see why it's such a hard, a hard one, especially if you're. Um, I guess in our sport, it is good because you do have to go out there and you have to find work, and it forces you to do it because you don't have millions of dollars to retire on. But um, I guess if you are those athletes that do have millions of dollars and you don't necessarily have to work, well, it's probably worse in a way because they're just sitting around a house all day with nothing to do. So it would be a lot harder for them to find some new goals and some new ways to manage their life. Yeah, I think that with athletes it's the same as almost like I've got friends that have, you know, been in Afghanistan and in the SAS and all those crazy experiences and they come back and they almost hit depression because you don't get that same high from normal life that you do when you're over fighting a war or jumping out of helicopters and all that sort of stuff. So I, I can relate it to that being quite similar to coming out of sport, especially if you didn't have, you know, that job experience, like you say. So that's crazy. So can we talk about, I guess, the life-changing injury that you had? Because I'm sure that had a dark side to it in the sport, especially if you were incredibly passionate, which it sounds like you were. How, what happened there? Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so it was in 2006, which is a while ago now, but we were just at our um, Australian Championships down in Adelaide. So kind of getting close to the Olympics in 2008, so all the qualification um, events and everything had started. So it was just um, the event hadn't started yet. We just normally get practice time before the event. Um, there was kind of a little bit of a, a trickier section that we were going through and I hadn't had any issues with it. And then the track was still a little bit soft because it was actually on an indoor stadium, so it was a new track built. Um, and I just come up a little bit shorter on one of the jumps and went over the handlebars and just kind of pretty much speared myself headfirst into the ground. And um, I was knocked out instantly at the time, which was probably good. And then um, I kind of came to at different parts. So I think once on the track and then once in the ambulance, but I did sort of notice I didn't have a, well, not really any sort of feeling or movement in my body, which was kind of a, a weird feeling, but I just kept coming in and out of consciousness. Um, and then probably the, the scariest time was I actually woke back up again, but I was in an MRI machine. So I kind of just flicked out a little bit because you wake up and you're just in this white coffin. Oh I felt like I didn't know I was dead or what was going on. Oh and my God. Yeah. Like I was started to get, yeah, pretty emotional in there. And then I guess, um, after a few hours had gone by and I started to come to, they started to assess me a little bit more and. Um, at the time they weren't sure they, they knew I'd broken three vertebrae in my back and they could see that there was a, a blood clot in my spinal column in my neck. And they were just really concerned about that because if the blood clot had a burst or anything like that, then it just would have been, mean, I was just instant quadriplegic. Um, and they were thinking about, uh, operating on my 
spine, um, my, my broken bones in the spine, but they were more worried that that could do more damage than good. So they just let me rest for a few days and let the swelling come down. And it was really fortunate that as the swelling came down, the feeling slowly started to come back in to my body. So, um, and then after a couple of days, I could move things again, just didn't have any sort of real good motor control. Like I couldn't, they'd ask me to touch my nose and I couldn't do it. Like I'd sort of miss my whole face. So I kind of came back fairly quick after that. I was in hospital for about three weeks um, and then I got sent home. I had a neck brace on for about six months. Um, and I think if a, at the time they just weren't sure, like any spinal injury, they weren't sure whether I was going to 100% recovery or whether I'd have some numbness or, you know, some, I guess, some issues with some of the movements. But, yeah, sort of after the six months and my neck brace was off and a whole bunch of physio and things that um, – yeah, I was just really fortunate it all came back. I had a few little issues, like I just walked down the street and all of a sudden just get pins and needles throughout my arms and like lose some feeling in that. But apparently that was just some of the nerve damage from the crushing of the of my vertebrae. So um, yeah, by this time, obviously it's 2000, just started 2007 and the Olympics are 2008. So if it hadn't have been for the Olympics, I definitely think I would have stopped the sport then. But because I was so set in my mind to go to the Olympics, um, that definitely pushed me through it and got me back on my bike. And for the next six months, just trained and put a whole bunch of weight back on. Because when you just lay on your back in hospital for weeks, I'd lost about 12 kilos. Oh so. God. Um, yeah. You're not exactly a big guy. <laughs> no, well, I was only 75 kilos at the time. Wow. So, yeah, I went back into being, you know, yeah, in the mid-60s, which was kind of scary. And then, yeah, I actually came back really fit and healthy and strong and was able to qualify for the Olympics and, yeah, just really fortunate. So um, I was kind of later in my career as well. I was sort of 27, 28 at the time, which isn't old, but, you know, in most sports it's sort of getting to the, the older ages and, yeah, it just gave me a good opportunity to, to finish a career and tick that box. Yeah, wow. What a story, hey. Is it, was there any, like, mental chatter going on throughout that time or were you just like, I need to get better, like you were just driven to succeed? Yeah, no, when I was in hospital, I was definitely depressed because, like, hospital is depressing and the doctors never give you any great news. It's always the, the worst-case scenario, yeah. so... Um, once I got home, which I probably got out of hospital a bit too early, but I just wanted to get out of there. But once I got home, I definitely started feeling better and probably not a great thing, but I've got videos of me on exercise bikes with my neck brace on and like <laughs> and stuff like that. So I was, after probably a week or two of being home, like my mindset was just 100% on qualifying for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So there was sort of, again, I think that's what pushed me through. I think if that Olympics wasn't there, I still would have recovered, but I don't think it would have um, been as quick and probably wouldn't have uh, been in the sport. Yeah, I think you potentially were saved by the Olympics in a sense because your mind had to switch to that rather than feeling sorry for yourself or trying to sit through the pain of what was going on. So let's talk about the Olympics, hey? You've been in the Winter X Games in Australia and the Olympics. It's a pretty cool thing to add to your CV. Um, and didn't you build a replica BMX track in your backyard to prepare for the success? Is that true? Yeah, so um, I was fortunate enough to have Red Bull as one of my main major sponsors. So they kind of came to me after I'd had my injury and said, look, what's the best way we can, you know, get you ready and prepared to, to for the Olympics and give you the best shot? And uh, my parents live on six and a half acres and we came up with a crazy plan of, well, why don't we build a replica of the track as um, as a training and testing ground and yeah we ended up doing that which was you know awesome because it gave me something to pretty much wake up and 
walk out to, to train on each day. Um, and that's what got me through, I think, in the end to be able to qualify. Um, and then the actual Olympics experience was probably one of the biggest highs and lows in my career. So obviously with the Olympics, it's a, a one-off event and, you know, everything's all laid down on the table at that one time. And I kind of definitely, probably the biggest time I've ever felt so much anxiety and nerves around a competition. I, I, you know, I trained a hundred percent for it and went in there with, you know, pretty much the fittest and the healthiest, strongest I've ever been. And I think I was ranked probably fourth or fifth in the world at the time. So definitely the potential to, to be in a medal hunt. Um, and my day just started and ended bad. So again, just being, being at the time, the sport wasn't a big sport and there was no social media back there. And, you know, there's not like the, the, I guess the, the things that you can see live on the internet and stuff now in our sport. So all of a sudden we're up on the start and our qualifying, my qualifying lap, like all of a sudden they tell you to stop because they got to wait for cameras and they got to wait for the crew. And oh, no. All of a sudden your mind, you're trying to stay switched on, but I didn't, you know, my mind wandered back thinking, hang on a second, like every single person I know around the world is watching like me right now. And as hard as it was to try and, you know, block that out, I just didn't do it strong enough. And then, yeah, the first three races I went in, so the first three qualifier races, I crashed in the first two and then got third in the last one, but that was enough just to push me out. So to sort of be, yeah, go in there with a chance of getting a medal and, you know, pretty much getting knocked out on the first day, it was definitely a... Um, a massive shock to the system and it, and it hit me hard that night for sure. I've probably never been so emotionally um, impacted by an event um, before, which was, um, it was tough to overcome and you just want to hide. Like, you know, you're at the Olympics, you just want to get out of there and not be in the mainstream. And, um, but yeah, in saying that being there and being a part of the village and, you know, walking around and having breakfast, sitting next to Usain Bolt and the, you know, the, the NBL dream team and stuff like that. It's just, it's a pretty surreal feeling and, um, and going to the closing ceremony. Cause we didn't get to the, go to the opening ceremony just because the, um, the pollution and everything was so bad over there. And we were one of the last events. They didn't want us in the town for too long, but to be a part of the closing ceremony and just to see the hundreds of thousands of people in the stand and all the countries come together, you sort of knew that you'd just been a part of something that's pretty, pretty special. Yeah, even though you didn't win, like that experience will go with you forever. You know, that's such an epic thing that most people can't say they've experienced, right? So it's Yeah, and that's it. And like I said, it's a shame that it wasn't a good experience, but just to, uh, you know, there definitely was some, some positives to take out of it. Definitely. And so I have seen many images of you with lots of medals and things. So you haven't had no success. You've won gold and bronze in all different things, yeah? Or have t- talk to us about what you have won. Yeah, so I did a little bit of mountain biking as well. So um, I was able to win um, in some of the disciplines in mountain biking, a few national championships and um, some World Cup podiums in that as well. Um, with BMX, it was I've won a lot of national championships, which was great. Unfortunately, I've only had a second and third at world championships, so I never got that first place there, which is also uh, one of those things that left a bit of a void. But um, no, in all, I can't um, can't complain. I've been very fortunate in in both um, BMX and mountain bike, and um, I actually went to. It was a little bit different. The Australian X Games, so they froze the snow slopes and built yeah. virtually like a in between a mountain bike and a BMX track on the snow. Um, and I was able to uh, to win that one, which was a bit of a shock because it was just something I was going to go in for fun. But yeah, so I've like I said, looking back, I kind of always. 
I guess I'm fairly humble in some ways and don't realise what I have done, but just in a sport like BMX to be able to say that, you know, for 12 years I just travelled the world riding a bike and, um, yeah, being able to compete was, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that I'll yeah, be able to remember forever. That's awesome. And I know being your friend how humble you truly are. So it is true. <laughs> and you don't probably recognize the greatness. And I probably didn't realize to the depth until I started to research you for today's show. So it's really awesome. And I'm so honored to have you on the show. So working with the younger guys and girls now that you do, because obviously being a national coach, that's what you're doing. I believe you do coaching weekly. Is that right? Yeah, so I do a bit of both. So my role as a national coaching manager, obviously I have to oversee the the coaching pathway for riders and coaches. So make sure the rider development pathway is there so they can transition through into hopefully going to the Olympics and then also the coaching pathway. So making sure coaches um, have a pathway that they can follow as well to make sure that they're learning the different steps of the sport and and they can support those riders at different levels. And then, yeah, still like on, in my spare time, like after work hours on the weekends, I just love coaching the, you know, the kids of all levels. So I coach kids from sort of under five years old to some of the parents that do it for fun with their riders as well. So that's definitely a little bit of a passion for me. And uh, I guess there's not much of a difference. It's actually, I find it better coaching people that are newer to the sport because obviously you can see those um, those progression steps are a lot faster. But it's interesting to see like coaching someone that's at an Olympic level or someone that's at a beginner level, sometimes they have the same issues or the same problems technically, mentally, whatever it is. It's like um, no matter how long you've been doing something, there's always something that you can look back at the basics and, and not step up too quickly. And I think that's one thing with our sport that I think in life everyone wants to be at the best or at the top tomorrow they don't realize they can take months years and sometimes may not even get there but it's the journey along the way that you know you can really take out of it yeah for sure and I always joke that I'm a overnight 12 year success <laughs> because it's it's taken me 12 years to get to where I am but people just see your success now and, I, and a reminder on that for those who are listening today it's really about like Luke just said, it is the journey to the destination that we need to remember and experience and enjoy. But it's also remembering that those people that you admire that are where you want to be, say not to compare your beginning to their end or your middle to their end because you're not in the same place. And then that's the, you know, that comparisonitis that I always talk about. It's not healthy. It's the thief of all joy. And so I think we have to remain consistent in our truth and in our passions and where we're going and where we're at in our journey as a coach or whoever it might be so what are the things you're passionate about teaching on like I mean do you teach mindset stuff I mean that's probably a big part but most of it is it practical learning for the guys yeah a little bit of both I think it depends on the age and the level of the riders definitely 100% like mindset comes into it at all ages but um, it's probably the biggest issue we see now with the riders transitioning from I guess that um, sort of 16, 17, 18 year group to into a professional rider is um, believing in themselves and and having that that goal set and believing in that goal so a lot of them like we said at the start will We'll set some goals and they'll try and achieve it, but you can see that 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 drive and that passion just isn't quite there in either their training sessions or um, 
or in the competition itself or you see that, you know, in training they're absolutely killing it and then they get to an event and you don't see the same rider turn up, you know, nerves creep in or something's there. So that's where it's a bit harder to identify and we have to try and get them to, you know, either work with sports psychologists or be able to at least recognise it because a lot of people like anything in life, the mindset's something that we don't know much about and we feel like it's a weakness if we talk about it. Um, but in our sport, it's something that's so big. So trying to get them to open up and dig deep in to find out what what is making you nervous. Is it because you want to lose? Are you scared of crashing? Like what part of it is it so we can actually work on that um, specific part? And the other thing, I guess for me, I'm not one of those coaches that's a, a loud screaming coach and, you know, getting them to train harder and push harder. I kind of feel like if I've got to do that every day to you, then you're not, you don't have it. Like if I've got to tell you to try harder, if I've got to tell you that, you know, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, um, you know, you've got to want to do that. Like I'm, I'm all happy to, you know, try and push them through that final rep or, you know, trying to, you know, yell at them when they're racing. But, yeah, they shouldn't need someone to wake them up in the morning and say, you know, you've got to try as hard as you can today. And that's, again, another sort of, I guess, red flag for me for some of these riders if they're sort of, wanting to be in a professional rider but expecting us as coaches to push them into that um yeah I just don't think that's going to work yeah that's the same with me as a coach I only work with women who are ready to take action who are results driven who are willing to do the work because yeah I can motivate you and I can guide you I can give you all the steps but ultimately you have to take those steps and if you're looking for motivation on a daily basis and you're not driven by your passion you're in the wrong place do something else with your life, you know, do something that lights you the fuck up because if this isn't it, then don't be doing it. You know, no one should have to make you do that. Yeah, and it's the same. Like everyone always wants a program and they always want, you know, things and I can give out 10 programs and I know that half of the riders won't even read it. It'll get put on the fridge or put on the rack. You know, another two or three of them will do it, at, you know, sometimes and then there's probably only one or two that will follow it 100%. So, and it's just a difference and that's why I try and tell the guys is the only reason that people are, you know, better than you is because they've believed in what they're doing every step of the way. One part of you somewhere isn't believing that you are the best and you can do it. So, and unfortunately in our sport and like all sports, usually that comes the time when they're on that starting line, when they've got to commit the most, that's when that self-doubt and belief comes in, which is, you know, the hardest part. And sometimes, unfortunately, you just can't fix it. You know, some people aren't built like that as much as they try and do what they can do. But um, I guess that's the, the key factor is as long as they can leave the sport, knowing that they've done every single thing that they can to try and be mentally and physically stronger, they shouldn't have any doubts. And that's why I try and tell these guys, because I've looked on back on my career and there's probably times where I didn't probably try as hard as I can or, you know, left some things um, still in the tank. And that's what I've tried to explain to them. My biggest thing looking back is if you can finish the sport knowing that you ended up trying everything you can possibly do, and then you leave the sport, you're going to, you know, not regret it. Otherwise, you're going to look back on life and think, shit, why didn't I just try that little bit harder at this time or whatever? And that's just going to eat you alive forever. Totally. And it's like anything in life, it's really about giving your 100% efforts to know that you gave the best, right? And then you can walk away with that, you know, sense of, okay, well, that didn't work out how I'd like it to have, but 
I gave it everything. So there is no regrets. We just learn, right? It's all about growth in life. And I think everyone is looking for the secret sauce. Hey, yeah. <laughs> that just came to mind then. Everyone's like, I want the latest, greatest program or I want you to tell me how to get more followers or I want to, you know, I want to know how you do it. And how you do it is unwavering commitment on a daily basis to showing up, doing the work, being true to yourself and having that belief when no one else has it for you. You have to work hard on your own behind the doors so that you can show up online or, you know, in your sense at the track and give your best. Yeah, and I think that's just a a key indicator for you that, you know, maybe that's not what you should be doing. Like if you're not doing that, um, you know, then you need to have a look at what you are doing. You need to either set new goals or, you know, look elsewhere for, for what you're doing, whether it be sport, work, whatever. But if you're waking up every day and finding it a punish just to constantly go through things, um, or maybe it is your goal and you just need to harden up, like, you know, there's a lot of different factors. But, yeah, it definitely doesn't come overnight. And, yeah, you can't just take that magic pill and all of a sudden life gets better. And that hardening up part, I think to a lot of people say they want something so badly and they may take the action, but they also don't understand there's parts to that that you have to do, you don't want to do. Like I don't love IT and I don't love this part of my business and I don't love that part, but I have to do all of those to get the other part, which is the creative side and talking to guests like you and doing these amazing parts of my business, but alongside that there's always going to be things that we have to do on a daily basis that don't actually light us up but are part of that overall bigger picture, right? Yeah, and I think it's also believing that. Like, that's why I hate social media because you see people living this fake life like 24-7 and I know you've commented on it a lot as well, but um, and it happens in our sport. Like, I see so many riders with these motivational quotes and training sessions and all of that and I see them and I'm like, where is that person? Like, I've never met that person. If you were that person when you raced, you'd be killing it. But, you know, you're, you've got this imaginary you know, person that you've made up on social media, but in the real life, he doesn't exist. So, you know, you need to either start believing in that person if that's who you think you are and that's who you want to be or change your social media because you're full of shit and that's not, you know, that's not who you are. So I think, uh, you know, I'd hate being a downer on social media because I know it's important in some ways, but I just hate it because there's so many people's lives that just seem so amazing and, just it must crush them on the inside because they're just creating this false life for themselves and I think it gives them it makes it even harder for them to to come out of that so yeah and I think that's you know one of the things that grinds my gears so much is people showing up online pretending to be the latest greatest thing or having the latest greatest thing and all these toys and all these things but behind closed doors is nothing like that I try my absolute hardest to be all that I can be on social media in the most authentic way and guide people to do the same and I think sadly social media creates that perception for people and and it's almost like I think I have a job to do in my space to impact the lives of others and I don't want to have an impact that's false in a sense of showing people the way and them going I want to achieve that yet I'm not truly living that or believing that or pretending this or doing whatever and I think it's you're doing a disservice to the world if you're showing up as not who you really are. Yeah, and if you're not believing in what you're, you know, you're, you're preaching, again, it's just a waste of time. Like if you're waking up saying, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to do this, but deep down you're thinking, oh, you know, I actually don't, then, again, I see that a lot in our sport as well. Like these riders, you know, telling themselves not to get nervous or telling themselves to commit and believe in themselves, but they're not actually believing what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's so 
it is hard. Like it's, it's something that I struggled with. Like everyone struggles with nerves and overcoming things. Um, but I think identifying it and, you know, not being scared to pull out of, um, you know, yourself what those things are and trying to address it and getting help for it's the, the hardest part. Mm. Um, I'd love to ask you one last question before we wrap it up. Do you, is there a daily personal routine that you have? I love learning what successful people do, like what are non-negotiables for you to keep you in that mindset, keep you achieving maybe when you're wearing sport. Maybe you don't have any. <laughs> but are there things that you prioritise to be the best at what you do? Because it is like you're saying, like to be able to show up consistently, and I know on my end of it, it takes dedication and passion and work because there are days when I'm like, oh, fuck it, I don't want to show up online today. But I go back to the mission of why I'm here in this world and the impact I'm here to leave. So that drives me because if I said to my clients, you need to do this, we need to do this on a daily basis, yet I'm not doing those things myself, I'm misaligned. So do you have non-negotiable actions that you take every day? Um, I kind of do because I never really used to. Like I said, I was trying to find my feet, you know, post sort of retiring from the sport but for me it's still going back to that key training routine so I found if I wake up you know in the morning and smash out a a really good training session whether it be in the gym or go for a run or whatever I feel like well one it's just good for me in general but I feel like I've achieved something like straight away I've started the day with a positive that I wanted to do like I feel better um, it clears my mind and I feel like my whole day is better. Whereas if I sort of sleep in and sort of hit the alarm and go, no, nah, I'll skip this today, I feel like I've just been flat the whole day and just cheated myself the whole day. So for me, definitely now that waking up, making sure that I'm doing something productive just in that first 30 minutes to hour of the day, and usually it is some sort of gym work, I find then I'm just one, just so more alert and and woken up for the day, but I feel so much better for it um, as well. So, yeah, that would be probably my one go-to that I've found has been working over the last probably 12 months. I love that because I know for me personally I'm going to work out after this because I had early start today. But if I was like, oh, I'll just do it later, I'll just do it later, my whole day just disappears and then I get to dinner time I'm like, I haven't even worked out. I can't be bothered now. And then I feel like crap and I didn't get to do it yesterday. And then I was like, yeah, I'll do it this morning. And you've just got to lock it in, find the time that works for you. But I think first thing in the morning should be your ultimate, you know, whether it's some sort of um, wellness routine, skin routine, movement, fitness, whatever it is for you that works in the morning, first thing, set you up for the day. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, no, definitely. And and that's what I mean. Like, I think everyone's seen that video of that speech where the guy says, just wake up and make your bed every day and you've accomplished something. And it, and it is true. Like, just do something and you feel like you've just ticked that box straight away. So, yeah, um, I think it's important for me to do. I know it makes my day a little bit better. Yeah, and I think from the things you've shared today and not having that identity or that drive to achieve or that challenge of the next race or, you know, goals that you're hitting, you probably need to set mini achievements for yourself to keep yourself in that space because now you're living in the real world. You don't have those highs and lows as often. So that probably keeps you motivated too, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And just like you said, like other little sports and trying things that I haven't done before and finding different things. And then even just, you know, quality time with friends and family and, you know, planning trips and holidays. Like I've never been on a holiday without my bike before. So <laughs> doing doing things like that and just having a normal life is also exciting. Like it's not probably as, um, you know, as, as heart racing as racing a an event but it's still it's a it's a different satisfaction now but yeah time's definitely different and it's more enjoyable when you can learn to enjoy it as well 
Yeah, that's awesome. So is there anything else you'd love to leave us with today, Luke, or have we covered all of the greatness? No, I think you've, um, yeah, you've definitely unwound myself and the sport a bit more and definitely tapped into the highs and lows of it. So, yeah, you definitely got a, uh, a pretty good rundown of my life and I guess my passions and, and where I'm at at the moment. So it was good. Yeah, that's awesome. So where can people find you online to connect with you, even though you're not the biggest social media person? I'm sure there's people that have listened today that want to go and stalk you on Instagram or something like that. We did say you were single. <laughs> Well, yeah, my Instagram's not uh, that exciting. People go on there more for my dog than myself. So um, it's just Medill17 um, and then, yeah, just Luke Medill on Facebook. So I don't have any uh, sort of athlete sites or anything like that. Again, I didn't want to go down that path. I'm a pretty uh, quiet person. But, yeah, happy to chat with anyone if they need any help or support or especially if they wanted to get into BMX also. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And you are incredibly humble and it's been so great for you to open up and share and, you know, share with my audience some goodies from you. So thank you again for being on the show. And there you have it, another incredible episode with another incredible guest. I hope that you're loving these episodes. I am thoroughly enjoying creating them. So there are many more to come. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already done so. And make sure you share this with someone if you think it could be useful for them. And don't forget, tag me on Instagram, send me a DM. I am always there to have a chat. Until next week, I hope you have an amazing week.